Wow, that was fun, wasn't it? 2021 coming to an end. Uh, And I don't really, I don't know how to sum this year up. It started, uh, at least where we were in Canada, um, ridiculously. We were in another lockdown. We thought cases were as bad as they were going to be. Uh, We were watching the states as Joe Biden was ready to take office and the Capitol riots. And then, um, you know, everything slowly started to get better. Um, You know, we went through a little bit of a Delta surge in the spring. And in the summer, you know, we were getting our vaccines. Everything seemed great. Uh, And now look at us. Omicron has taken over. And, uh, you know, I don't... I don't really know how to sum up this year. I'm feeling kind of numb. Um, but as the tradition continues, uh, we continued with episodes here on the Life in, Red Pod- Life in Red podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for making it uh, another incredible year of uh, growth, not only in terms of the numbers of the podcast, um, but in terms of myself. I've had uh, amazing guests, 32 in total, um, and you know, almost an episode a week. We went through uh, two mental health breaks about taking a month off uh, and trying to reevaluate things and and look how things were going. Um, Podcasting is not always easy. It does take up a lot of time. And sometimes if you get focused on the numbers, you can become a little bit, um, I don't know, dazed to it, uh, a little bit frustrated with growth. But every time I get frustrated with how the numbers are going, what social media looks like, engagement, interactions, all the numbers and analytics. I remember the reason why I started this was to uh, not only help people, but help myself by talking to experts, to people a lot smarter than me, people who are extremely passionate. um, And that's what we did again this year. So uh, I've narrowed down the top 10 episodes in terms of downloads, not in terms of you know, my favorite guests or the the episodes that made the most impact. Um, so if you're an episode and you're, you were a guest this year and you didn't make it, that's, that's okay. Uh, it was an amazing conversation with you. These are only the top 10 episodes that come down to um, downloads. That's the only metric I used. And it is diverse, which I love. Lots of women, uh, actually almost exclusively women, uh, and one man uh, made it on to the list. So there you go. Women kicking ass in 2021. Um, and a, a definitely a, a deep breadth of variety on what we covered this year. I mean, we've talked to, again, mental health experts, advocates, mediums, um, activists, people in uh, a whole bunch of different areas like alcoholism, uh, a medium, Um you know, I just, I, I can't thank the people who have joined me and spent a, an hour with me this, this year um, and just and chatting and letting me get to know them and being open and vulnerable. Uh, it's, it's such an incredible honoring privilege uh, that people feel safe enough to not only share it in an intimate conversation with me, but allow me to put that out to the internet where we know it's not always the, the kindest of places. So, uh, why don't we get right into it? Please uh, give yourself a hand for making it this far into the year. Uh, We all deserve it. Welcome to the top 10 episodes of the Life in Red podcast for the year 2021.
take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. All right, let's get into it with the 10th most downloaded episode, number 10. Uh, Chatted with a a person I've met before in real life. Uh, We have mutual friends in contact um, and both previous guests of the show, uh, Madison and Jenna. Um, and this was a, a great conversation that really opened my mind to a lot of different things. Um, and in specifics, women's health and uh, endometriosis. We get into her diagnosis, her treatment, um, her experience living. And then we talk about this incredible company that she made out of this. Uh, it's called Golden Girl. Um, and it makes jewelry and uh, tons of great things and, and money goes to... Uh, well, $5 from every sale goes to helping uh, women's health initiatives. So at number 10, from all the way back in May, uh, it was my conversation with Summer Barada. Body. Uh, and what yeah. are some of the things that you experienced or experience uh, mm-hmm. like with it? So endometriosis is a disease where tissue that's similar to that which grows in your uterus called the endometrium um, grows outside of your uterus. So essentially it's just kind of this rogue tissue that's taking over and growing all over. Um, and it's not supposed to be there and it can cause like debilitating and severe pain. Um, so for me, I, I only discovered I had endo when I was about 21, 22. So in my early twenties and my, my experience with it, I'm actually very fortunate. I got diagnosis a lot sooner than most people. Um, but for me, it was just, you know, I would have my period and it would be unbearable. I've blacked out. I've vomited. Um, I'm hunched over in pain. I've taken way over the limit of painkillers and I'm still in extreme pain. Um, you know, I've, I've suffered dehydration, um, pretty severe intolerances to like food and alcohol. You know, the normal consumption would just completely make me a wreck the next day. Um, other digestive issues essentially, but the pain is pretty much the worst part because it starts to affect your work life and your love life and your friends, everything, right? Like I would go to work at good life and I would be hunched over. And one of my sister who worked there at the time, her clients was a nurse. and was like, somewhere like you can't take any more painkillers, you know, cause she knew what I was going through. Um, So when you're in that much pain, there's obviously like a mental effect that comes into play as well. Mm. So for me, it was, it was pretty hard. Um, And I think one of the biggest effects is like kind of, it kind of took me off like the dating and social scene for a while. Um, Just because I didn't feel physically or mentally fit to be, to be out there. Um, And that, that's tough. Yeah. It's, it's one of the things, um, I haven't talked about it in a while on the podcast, uh, but I, I've covered especially um, chronic pain with women that you're right. Not only are you dealing with excruciating pain, but like that, that mental health aspect of it is huge because it's hard to be, you know, in a good mental health space when you're in pain. So you kind of get that, that dual um, cycle going on with just like everything just kind of seems like it's going to, to shit. I'm curious about your experience 
getting diagnosed. Um, and obviously it's a touchy subject for a lot of people, but from my experience and conversations on this podcast and in real life, going to a doctor with an issue like this can be very, like endo can be very hard to diagnose because often, you know, you said you were taking a bunch of painkillers, but that often that you go into ER and they're just like, go just take some painkillers and go away, mm-hmm. please like go have a nap or, or they'll, they'll question your diet and, you know, lose some yeah. weight or something. Right. Like they just, just, it's very dismissive. So it's really hard to get a doctor to pay attention and um, yeah. take you seriously. Was that your experience as well with it? Um. I, I have a really good family doctor. So, um, I was very lucky and, you know, a lot of people don't even have family doctors and that's where it's, where those trips to the ER, I have been in that situation where you go and your experience is horrible, right? You don't, don't get answers for the most part. Um, and from the endo community, that's what I've heard from a lot of people. Um, but I was essentially referred to a gynecologist, um, when I talked to my doctor about like, you know, the pain I was going through and how this is just not normal. Um, and he saw me fairly quickly. Um, my experience with him was interesting because right off the bat, he said, okay, based on what you're describing to me, you could have had endometriosis. And just like I did now, um, I was like, what, what is that word? I can't even say it. Right. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I remember looking at my mom and we're like, huh? Um, and this was only maybe five, six years ago. And I had no idea what it was. And none, none of my friends or family did either. Um, and he said, okay, so here there's options of what we can do here. Typically, like we go in and we do it laparoscopically and we'll remove it. Um, or, you know, there aren't really any cures, but there's two things that have seemed to help um, either a hysterectomy or um, you get pregnant. And I'm 21, 22. Mm. At the time. He's like, but you maybe want to have kids, right? And I was just kind of like shocked because I was thinking, is it, are you being serious? Like, I, I can't tell if you're, you know, he's a very sarcastic, smart guy, but I was offended. I was like, you're telling me that either I have to like be a mom right now, or I have to remove my only way to have my own child. Like this, the, that can't be the reality of it. Um, so obviously I said, no, like I'm not comfortable with that. So he did some tests and it found, um, I actually had an ovarian cyst and because I had that, they were, they wanted to remove it cause it was wrapping around my ovary. So that's how they confirmed I had endo. Um, so the time frame in which that happened was actually only a few years, which is pretty good. I think the average is about seven upwards. So I found out pretty quickly. Um, but the experience, it was rough. Like I went through a lot of, um, different treatments and stuff. And we might dive into that a little bit more after, Mm -hmm. but um, my diagnosis time was fairly good compared to what a lot of people go through. So once you're diagnosed, let's talk about those, those treatments and like, and what you're doing is Mm -hmm. this disease, is it hereditary? Is it something that can just happen? Is it from lifestyle? Um, You mentioned that it's pretty common. So, you know, what, what are some of the things that you had to do to try to manage this? Yeah. So it is common. It's one in 10 that have it. Oh shit. Okay. Yeah. So it's a lot. So in Canada, I think it's like 157 million or something. So it's a lot. Um, and, or is that worldwide? I mean, my math is not good, but it's a big number regardless. Um, 
for me specifically, what happened was I had that surgery. So the surgery helps. That's the pretty much the two things is you can do for endo that will really help our um, excision or ablation surgery. So where they go in and they either cut it out and like actually dig out all the tissue and remove it, or they cauterize it. Um, the cauterizing isn't as helpful because, you know, you're, it's like a plant. You're kind of keeping the roots that can continue to grow back. Um, so I had my first surgery and before that he tried me on different hormone therapies because that was kind of something that you can manage it, right? Like I've been on the birth control pill since I was 14. And that for me was, um, kind of scary because that's the only thing that kind of manages when I would have these flare-ups because mine were really, really based around uh, my period. And for a lot of people, it's not like that. They can have day-to-day extreme pain. So um, the first thing we tried was the Depo-Provera shot, which is a birth control needle that they, they put in your bum and you get it every three months. And one of the side effects of that, there's a one in 1000 chance you can have alopecia, which means hair loss. And I had that. Um. So... I was in the shower um, and about like a clump like this came out Wow! in the shower. And for a girl um, who loves hair and, you know, we have weird sentimental attachment to our hair. That was a big no-no. So I went back to the doctor and he's like, hmm, weird. Okay. Well, I guess we can't do that anymore. We're going to have to put you back when you're already on. And I was like, okay, great. So I went through several months of these injections Um, and changing my hormones. So, which means increasing flare-ups, increasing the frequency of periods, uh, the intensity of them for nothing. Um, I was fast-tracked to a specialist here in Ottawa who uh, works out of the Riverside Women's Hospital. So they have a really great center there for anyone that does have endo. If you can get it, your doctor to get you there, that's what I I recommend. Mm. Um, And we tried other kinds of therapies as well for hormones. Um, I was actually put into a um, clinical trial because there was a drug that looked really good. And so I was approved for it just based on the intensity and um, frequency of my pain. And it turns out that it had to be canceled after months of me going off my uh, therapies and stuff for this because there was cancer in ovarian cancer in the rats that they were testing over. Yeah. So a lot, you go through a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the thing with endo. And I, I think, you know, with a lot of diseases is there isn't really just a one-stop shop for a cure or for a remedy. And it's going to be completely different for everyone. So I went through a lot of hoops um, and a lot of pain kind of going off and on different medications and, and treatments. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a ton of work. Skipping ahead to number nine, uh, the ninth most downloaded podcast this year of 2021, uh, was with friend, fellow Ottawa native, uh, unsinkable community champion, and mental health, a mental health speaker and advocate. She's a writer and author at Little Voice Books. Um, <laughs> just one of those people that uh, just does so much and inspires me to do more and get more involved because uh, they just do such great work in our community and uh, the mental health world in general. Um, we talked about in this episode, some of her struggles, her mental health story, uh, another episode with endometriosis. And I think most importantly, um, her efforts to become a mom and the mental health toll it took on her and continues to take on her as she continues to live her story. Um, it was an absolute 
uh, treat to chat with her. She's so articulate and intelligent and uh, a generous human being. And I'm, I'm lucky enough to call her a friend. So please uh, welcome the ninth top episode, top nine episode uh, with Amanda Bernardo. The emotional impact of one, being diagnosed, and then two, finding out, you know, finding out all about it, starting to learn about it and, and what that may take on your life. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'll just premise if I cry, I apologize. Like I'm usually really good at telling the story. I, I've only told it, you know, this way a few times. Like I, I do enjoy Twitter because, you know, I can just write it and writing is kind of my way of expressing myself. But um, it was a lot because it kind of came at me left field. Like in, in essence, when I look back at kind of my, my history, like I could have been diagnosed with endometriosis a lot sooner is what, you know, my, my doctors had said I had, you know, bad menstrual cycles, you know, this is really getting into it, Ryan, but since I was like very young and, um, I was on painkillers, like that was the way to actually manage it. It was just pain management. And I remember even back then, you know, having to sometimes take like two or three days off and people didn't really get that. And it's just like, oh, you're over exaggerating or, you know, it can't be that bad or you're trying to get out of a test or you just don't want to go to work. And it was really frustrating because nobody choose to be, chooses to be like in bed crying in absolutely dire pain. Um, so that was like the very, very early days. And, and that was a struggle. When I finally got diagnosed, it was both like a, a blessing and a curse because I'm a firm believer that knowledge is power. And so, you know, I felt that I was empowered to figure out my next my next steps because I had this diagnosis. Suddenly, like all the years of pain and everything that I had been through had a reason for it. And I wasn't just crazy. And, you know, people say like, oh, it's just bad periods for women. And like, I think so many times early signs of endo or even PCOS get dismissed as a result of that notion. Um, so that was, you know, in the very beginning, I was kind of like, yeah, I kind of know what's going on now. I felt super empowered. When I ended up starting kind of like the specialist appointments, I think that's when things hit me the hardest in that, you know, I probably should have took someone to those appointments, but here I was like, I'm 26. I can totally do this on my own. Um, I was just very overwhelmed. And I remember following my hospital visit, I was referred to the Women's Health uh, Center. And I remember I just booked the morning off and I was like, yeah, I'm going to go to work like right after. And I left the, like, the meeting and that meeting kind of basically told me everything. And the doctor was very kind and said, you know, don't let this get into your head. Like technology has come a long way. There's other ways that you can get pregnant. Like, don't worry. It's just a risk, blah, blah, blah. But being someone that's already, you know, very anxious, I just, you know, immediately just started harboring that what if to the most negative conclusions possible. And I remember I got in the car, called my mom and told my mom, yep, it's endometriosis. And I guess my mom had a more understanding of what that was. And she was kind of like, are you okay? Like, do you want to come home? Like, are you gonna go to work? And I'm like, yeah, like, I'm fine. Like, I'm just gonna go to work. And I got to work. And to me, the most one of the most powerful questions, and I say this quite often is how are you? I think people undervalue that common, how are you? Um, but when someone's like at that moment where that question is really critical, 
it can open like the floodworks, which, which basically was my situation. Got to the office. One of my colleagues had said like, oh, where were you? Like, is everything okay? And just started bawling, you know, my eyes out because everything was just starting to hit me again, kind of that delayed processing of what I was told, what my future could look like. And oddly enough, the woman that asked me had endometriosis. I had never known that. Um, And she told me her journey and kind of what she was going through. And, you know, she didn't get diagnosed for four years. So she kind of four years of struggling to get pregnant, didn't really know, finally got diagnosed with endo within three years, was able to conceive. So a seven year journey. So here I was 26 thinking, oh my gosh, like, is it going to take me seven years to get pregnant? Like, what will my journey be like? And then that started weighing in on my, you know, in my head. From an emotional perspective, I think there were like two really hard parts of that journey. One, being diagnosed and being told kind of everything. And two, explaining that to my fiance. Mm -hmm. So for me at the time we were, we were just, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, um, dating for a long time. We've been together now 10 years. So this would have been, you know, four years roughly into our relationship. Um, but I felt I had, I owed it to him to explain what I was told word for word. Um, and that was scary because part of me was like, how do you tell someone that there could be a chance that they can't be a father or, you know, naturally. Um, so then that started, I get, I started getting very, very obsessed about how do I have this conversation? What will this mean for us? Like, will this end our relationship again, just spiraling into that anxious kind of regard for what was happening. Um, and he was fantastic. Like I couldn't have asked for a better partner to kind of help me through this. Um, obviously, you know, whatever happens, happens was kind of his answer here for you. Love you. It's not going to change anything, which was a huge relief, but that was one of the harder emotional um, moments and people that I've met recently. I think that is a hard part of their story is that although you're dealing with it personally as, you know, an experience for yourself um, to have to pull someone else into your story that can't control it, was um it was I can see it's hard for couples and it was really really difficult um for me I, I didn't want to take something away from someone else um so those would have been probably the the hardest you know two emotional you know times and probably the third would be now in that you know I got engaged super excited you know I'm Catholic so I wanted to do it right in, in our sense of get married, have my child. And, and I say right for me because, you know, everyone has their, their own journeys. But right for me was I wanted to get married and then I wanted to start my family. And then when, when the pandemic hit, it just was super overwhelming because here I was. Time has felt like an enemy to me ever since I was diagnosed. I'm getting older. So now I'm not only dealing with my age, I'm dealing with the condition. Um and throughout my condition, I ended up in the hospital quite a few other times. I was then diagnosed with PCOS. And most recently, I had fibroids in my uterus. And so every time I had these hospital visits, it was infertility, infertility, infertility. So then that started getting really hard is every time I started to convince myself and to find the courage to, you know, there's a quote that, you know, to accept the things I couldn't change. I was just being hit and tested over and over again. And by the time the pandemic happened, it was like, 
how much more of this can I take? Like how many more bumps in the road is, are going to be thrown my way before I can be a mother? And then the other hard part was seeing everybody get pregnant during the pandemic. And obviously I'm so happy for my friends and I have such great friends, but that in itself was very difficult because, you know, I'm not looking at it and saying, I wish that was me and, and jealous or envious, but at the end of the day, I wish that was me. You know, it's, it's very hard. And so those old emotions of looking at women who were pregnant, those are strangers. And so I didn't necessarily see it all the time, but now it was like closer to home and I was seeing it a lot more. And I was just so desperate for it that I was just, you know, when will it be my turn? And it's, so it's been a bit of, of an emotional roller coaster. Um, you know, writing has been my saving grace. It's just how I communicate. Um, I'd like to think I'm a good public speaker too, but you know, when you public speak, you almost, you're speaking for others benefit. When I write, I find I'm, I'm writing for myself and able to kind of work through what I'm feeling, but it, um, it's like you said, it, it's a never ending journey. Like even now I'm, three months out to a wedding date, which we've set in stone and we're moving forward. And I finally started next steps with specialists in terms of thinking about my endo and how I plan forward. And that unknown just eats away at your emotions because you don't really know what to expect. And that's just a really scary feeling. You apologized about you maybe crying and then you had me up <laughs> about your partner. Um, but that just, it's so beautiful. I just love when people are like that and just, you know, are supportive and, and, and everything. One of, so on this podcast, I've had the chance to talk to mothers about mental health and and pregnancy and, and, you know, kind of postpartum. I've, I've been able to have those conversations around this subject and the subject with you, the struggle to, you know, get pregnant and, and become a mother in that struggle of maybe not knowing. And, and like you said about anxiety, when you don't know the end, right? Like it's so hard to control. I just Episode number eight was one of those episodes that just encapsulates why I want it to start a podcast. And I talked with an absolute genius, a mental health researcher and PhD candidate uh, for the integrated program in neuroscience at McGill University. Huge, huge. And we talk about science of mental health and that stuff I love because as an advocate, I can talk about lived experience. I can talk about uh, lived experience with people on this show and that's super, super important. But I love to combine that with knowledge about the sciences and the actual research that's going into, you know, what's happening with mental health and mental illness. And we talk about stress, our gut and our brain and all those factors in between so things like how you know specific stressors in our life impact us in a biological and neurological way, um, intergenerational trauma, um, all sorts of things like that. And it's like this episode was one of those ones that just was a mind blower of all the things I've learned and been able to take it away from it. So uh, from all the way back in August when it was released uh, at um, episode number eight, please give it up for Kasha. Shishkovich. Really interesting that when you learn them or heard about them, you're like, oh, like it just kind of like one of those light bulb moments or really got you excited or really got you scared. Like just some of the, the, the big pieces. 
I think one of the sort of most salient things when I first started in this field was that sense of like, something can happen that you don't remember that can still completely sort of shape um, how you behave as an adult. So the model that I work with, for instance, um, my early life stress model is a resource scarcity model. So it's basically I induce poverty in mice is kind of the easiest way I can describe it. So instead of mom having all the nesting material that she needs to build a really great home for her babies, she only has a little bit. And this really, really stresses her out. Because what happens is she keeps leaving the nest, trying to find more nesting material. She doesn't take as good of a care of her pups because she's so focused on trying to build this better nest. <clears throat> and when I heard about this model, I thought it was really interesting because it's something that we see in society quite a lot, mm-hmm. especially with either like um, young families where both parents have to work a lot, or especially in single motherhood where mom's working two, three jobs. And it's not that mom doesn't care about her kids. Of course she does. And she's trying to do the best she can. And it's really not like, a, you know, everything is mom's fault, which is kind of a criticism of this kind of, kind of research that people mm-hmm. give sometimes. And it's like, no, it's not that everything is mom's fault. It's that mom is not supported. Mm. Mom doesn't have adequate resources and she's doing the best she can. And she needs to prioritize her kids, or in the case of my mice, her pup's safety. So she prioritizes trying to make sure that the nest is as good as possible, that the home is as good as possible, that there's as much food as possible, but that comes at the consequence of actually spending time with them and actually nurturing them. And that's really shocking to me because in my model, like, um, so mice don't open their eyes in the first kind of week of life. And they also don't have fur. They're basically like, uh, the equivalent of a human in its third trimester, um, as an embryo. So like, they don't remember anything. They're not really registering this. They're just kind of like these little, like they look like little kidney beans, Mm. little naked kidney beans sort of rolling around. And now and again, they're like, Oh, mom's here. Mom's gone. Mom's here. Mom's gone. But even several months later, when they're adults, they're still behaving completely differently. And there's still traces of what happened in their biology. So they don't remember this experience at all. And then other mouse models of early life stress, even stress the mom prenatally. And these experiences also have really, really long lasting effects, which is wild because these could be stressors that happen like completely sort of naturally. And again, outside of our control, like um, at the hospital I work at, there's a research group looking at the effects of the ice storm of 98 Mm -hmm. and how that, how mothers who were pregnant at that time, their kids have very specific developmental outcomes that are different from mothers who were pregnant like the year before because that was such like a stressful time, even though it was only a few days and completely outside of anyone's control. Right. And again, the kids don't remember this, but it's like these things that happened completely sort of quote unquote randomly when they were tiny are influencing them throughout life. And yeah, I'm really, I'm really interested in this. And this also like intergenerational trauma is something that I've done a little bit of work into and that I have a lot of firsthand experience in because it's like my parents experienced the communist regime in Poland. My grandparents experienced World War II in concentration camps. And those are the stories that I was raised on as mm-hmm. well. And it's like, even though I didn't directly experience those, I definitely feel the effects of them cognitively. Mm-hmm. And I think we see this in a lot of cultures as well. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously indigenous people in Canada 
have this very, very strikingly. And for instance, have really high rates of not only mental illness, but also a lot of physical illness. And again, not necessarily people who experienced residential schools, for example, or anything else, but just being in that community and having that intergenerational trauma is enough to kind of predispose you to a lower quality of life and difficult health outcomes and all these kinds of things. So I sort of rambled, but this is like the big picture stuff where mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, you know, these, these things that happen to us that we don't remember or that happened even before we were born or even before we were conceived do kind of have effects on our lives. And yeah. I just, I think mm-hmm. that's wild. It's gotten me really interested in history and yeah, uh, it's a scary. Lot of, like, it's really scary. <laughs> through no fault of your own through nothing. Right. We're always taught, you know, controlling your destiny all these different things yeah those those cliches that like motivational like girl bosses use and stuff like that (laughs) um i don't mean to pick on girl bosses but that this idea of all these things that like we weren't even alive for has this effect on who we become and and our future and that's a scary proposition um because there's not there's some things you can do to mitigate it, but really at the end yeah. of the day, like you're kind of like just the help you the dealt the hand that you have. Yeah. I wanted to ask about intergen- intergenerational trauma because that is when I don't talk about it much on the podcast, but I do have some personal um, family stuff that's going on with that. Um, but I'm curious about the idea because when you first said what you're researching, that was something that immediately came to mind. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about it, is it that biological factor of that, like the stress of the mother prenatally, even maybe before they were pregnant has a, a role, like that stress then can carry on biologically when the baby's yes. born. Yes. Oh, so you have that then plus all the circumstances around that they're traumatized and have mental illness and yeah. And how and they're raising their that. kids and what the kids find out about the culture. So it really all plays into this. It, this idea plays, of inter- in. it plays into the well-being of the child and how they're going to grow up. Yeah. Like, I assume you've heard about epigenetics as a concept. That sounds like the name, but can you explain it? Yeah, of course. So um, basically we have our own DNA, so our own genes in every single one of our cells, right? And we get about half of it from mom, half of it from dad. And the thing is that all our cells are identical, but not in terms of their genetic code but they're not all identical clearly in terms of how they act. So our skin cell is different from our kidney cell, for example, is different from a brain cell. And that's because there's regulators on our DNA. They're like little bits, little molecules, basically, or molecular tags that tell the cell, okay, make this part of the gene or make that part of the gene. And those are called epigenetic regulators. So epi just means on top. It's basically Mm. signals that go on top of our DNA and tell us, okay, express this, express that, make less of it, make more of that. And that's super important for our development. And what a lot of researchers have found is that stress also changes the way these act. So for instance, when you're really, really stressed, your system will actually tell you, okay, we'll make more of this gene, make more of that gene in this particular brain region. And those tags can become almost permanent if you have a lot of like chronic stress to the point that they can also actually be passed down through gametes. So through sperm and egg in general, most of these tags are removed 
like kind of wiped clean uh, when like the egg is conceived and stuff, almost all of them, but there's a little bit of evidence that some of them are actually passed down. And this is a really big problem, especially in our maternal line, because I don't know if you know this, but when grandma is pregnant with your mother, your mother already has the egg that will become you. So grandma's stress is already going onto that egg that will become you and is also prenatally already affecting mom. Oh my God. Okay. I yeah. Know that. Yeah. And that's like really, really shocking. Um, so especially through the maternal line, there's a lot of kind of stress that can be carried either prenatally, which is almost like a direct effect because you already exist or this like one generation back. So it wouldn't necessarily like your entire ancestral line, like, would it like, like, could it it just continuously kind of like, go? I mean, I don't even know the answer, but like, would it go back all the way to like my ancestor in like 1700 or like it's like super hypothetically right super hypothetically because it's like the same way that your genes do and it's like okay it gets it gets diluted obviously with every generation and then also depending on what their environment was like what their stressors were like what that kind of happened like that can sort of shift stuff but very hypothetically yeah like we are a product of that like I'm, I'm super into like multi-generational historical fiction. I started reading a lot of that lately, just, you know, all these kinds of stories of like eight generations that start with, you know, this horrible thing that happens in the 17th or 18th century. And then watching sort of how descendants deal with that. Mm. Um, yeah. There's a lot of really, really good books kind of exploring this idea. And it really gives you this like flavor of especially when we think about like racism and intergenerational trauma within specific communities, it's like, you know, to say, Oh, racism is over. And it's like, no, it's not like, these are people who are still experiencing these echoes of what happened 30 years ago, what happened a hundred years ago, what happened several hundred years ago. And they're experiencing it not only on a cultural level, but also on a biological level. Yeah. It takes that nature nurture idea. And it's like, oh yeah. You like when you said at the beginning, you're like, it's both. It's both. It's 100%. It totally opens this idea of that. Like, like, I guess if you don't believe it, like, I mean, can't help you there, but I mean, the science as you, and as it will continuously develop, because I, you know, I have a good feeling that as this, as we continue to learn more about our past and more voices are being shared, the research will follow in these particular areas because we are no longer relying on old white men who might take an interest in it. And we're going to have a diverse. <laughs> it's so funny to look at where we are now versus when we were in April uh, at the end of April, May, where we were in the height of what we thought was a, the most devastating wave we would ever did. And I guess in terms of what the ICUs looked like, um, and more like deaths, we were absolutely there. I mean, as I say that, Omicron or a new variant could come across and totally blow it out of the water. Um, but thankfully, right now, as I record this, the ICUs are still stable. Um, but as fortunate as we are for that, we are still losing people to Omicron. But going back to April and where we were in the pandemic, we were pretty much pre-vaccine for most people. So we were all extremely, extremely worried. And this was even really, I mean, was it Delta? I don't even remember. I don't even remember what day it is most of the time. 
Um, but I was able to talk with uh, some nurses from the Ottawa hospital and we talked about what it was like working in the pandemic. And we talked about what it's actually like in the ICUs caring for these patients, uh, the trickle down effects throughout the hospital, which we're, we're still facing all of that. We're still facing, you know, the effects of canceled surgeries of people not seeking treatment or not being able to seek treatment. And I think most importantly of all, we talk about the mental health impact of nurses, staffing shortages, which since this episode came out has only significantly increased and it's scary. And I, I talked to Christy uh, a little while, a little uh, later in the year. Um, and we, we kind of followed up on this conversation and it's only gotten worse and it's only continued to get worse as Omicron takes a hold and whatever else happens. So it's a little dated, but I think a lot of it still applies. And I think that's why this episode ranks so highly. So um, at number seven, talking about nursing during COVID, uh, I was joined by Christy Cowan and Alicia. Mind the public that like, these are human beings. These are... These are just real people. And, you know, same with nurses and these, these poor people in the long-term care facilities were, you know, the, the reports were, were shocking and, and really sad. And they're people. You have to treat people with dignity and, and with care that they need. Mm-hmm. I think doctor shows have really, what's the word? They've, it's all about the doctor. People have this perception that it's like the doctor that comes in and takes care of you and, and all that. When in reality, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that like you see the doctor for five minutes, maybe once a day. Mm-hmm. It's the nurses and the other staff that are in there taking care of you and doing everything for you. And, yeah. the you know, I've seen a level of disrespect for nurses that, you know, like I can't sit here and pretend I know everything that you all do, but that, you know... I think there's a lot of misogyny in that too, but it's just the level of disrespect always baffles me. Alicia, same kind of question to you. Like, what are the things you're really trying to, you know, let people know about this? Mm -hmm. I think something that you said earlier about how, you know, a lot of people who um, are sort of disregarding COVID as a serious issue talk about sort of the, you know, well, only only this many people out of a hundred are going to, are going to get sick and, and are going to die. Um, and I think it's, it's easier to have that perspective if you haven't known somebody who's been sick. Uh, and so obviously my perspective is that I see the sickest patients and I see, and I know that for every patient in the ICU, there's five or 10 more out on the COVID ward, right? And uh, for every five or 10 that are on the COVID ward, there's, you know, 100 at home dealing with the stress of this illness. So, and every single patient that we have has, has a family. And it's been real, that's been one of the really hardest parts of this uh, whole situation is that right now, you know, you, you can't have, there are no visitors, really, the only time visitors are coming in is if someone unfortunately is going to pass away. Um, And so we have, uh, you know, we do the best that we can with FaceTime. Um, The patient that I had the the last two shifts, um, they had, you know, we set up a FaceTime call. And there was like, 
you know, like 20 people on the call. They had, they had family from all over the place on the call. And, you know, I just kind of put the, I put the iPad in front of the patient who like, again, is, is intubated and sedated. Um, But I put the iPad there and I just tell the family to talk to them. And most of the time I just leave the room so that they can have sort of that time with each other and to be outside the room and hearing these families talk to the patient. It's, it's really, really heartbreaking. And I think like, I just imagine like if that was my husband in that bed and I couldn't even be there with him, it's really terrible. So, you know, I want people to know that just because this hasn't affected you in your life doesn't mean that it's not affecting other people. And I think just like the most common sort of, you know, the common goodness in people should be to, to worry about those of us that, that are affected by this and to care, um, you know, and that, that is how this started for me was just wanting people to understand that, that just because this hasn't touched your life doesn't mean that there aren't people out there that are really suffering. Um, and, and then, yeah, I also feel as though, um, you know, there are a lot of issues, you know, we, as an ICU nurse, I have to say, like, I have it pretty good, (laughs) right? I work in an area of the hospital that's pretty well funded. Um, Yes, we have staffing ratio issues, you know, yes, I wish that I had more paid sick time and better vacation policies, like that's all true. But for me, I really worry about the nurses, like you said, in long term care, who were dealing with terrible situations before COVID even started. And that entire system is broken. Um, And then also just the nurses that work on the floor and home care nurses, like there's, there's an entire profession that just needs more respect. And um, I like, I just hope that if anything comes out of this pandemic, it's maybe going to be, you know, better working conditions for, for nurses. And also just for the people in, in those situations, the people in hospital, the people in long-term care, the people requiring home care. um, You know, I hope that some good comes out of this. I, I have to say that I'm not super optimistic about it because I think we've seen before that it, it takes a lot for things to change, but I'm really hoping that, that some good comes out of this. Yeah, I'm with you. Like that's my hope and I'm not optimistic because I, I don't know what it is, but they always cut healthcare and education yeah. first. And I'm like, pardon me. Um, mm-hmm. I want to talk about, the mental health of nurses, because I mean, this is the main reason I wanted to have you on. We've heard about the pandemic, but the mental health of our healthcare workers is not really being discussed too much in in the broader conversation of things. Mental health is my background. That's something I'm very passionate about. I public speak Mm -hmm. about it and and everything and talking to my friends in the nursing profession and and how much they're struggling uh, with it right now. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, mental health and lockdown, and which is valid, but they're not concerned about the mental health. There's almost an expectation that, oh, well, you signed up for this. Like, this is what you wanted to deal with. So, like, we don't have to feel bad. I want you to, as deep fire trucks in this important <laughs> conversation, um, can you tell me, you know, 
what is the state of mental health with our nurses right now? And please get as deep as you'd like to and share any stories that you can. Christy, I'll start with you. Well, I think everyone is um, feeling that pandemic fatigue, for sure. Um, and, and I speak as a parent as well. Like there's, mm. there's you're not just um, stressed at work. We have a, a whole home life that's been thrown upside down as well. So you don't um, come home from work and get a break. You're always on. And that's how someone described it to me recently is it's really hard. We don't have any downtime. We, we're always on. And you can't, that's not sustainable. You can't do that forever without, um, without breaking down. So I, I think we're going to see it in the coming months uh, more. So I think the toll is, is starting to happen. Um, I'm seeing changes in people's personalities. You know, there's some people who um, used to be really social and used to sit down at break and, and talk the whole time and have a conversation and laugh. And I'm seeing these people go off and have break by themselves. And, you know, I, I'm one of them. I had, I wanted to find a place just to have my own, my own break alone the other day. And I'm that person. I used to want to be in the break room with everybody and chat. Mm-hmm. So I, you're seeing small changes in people, especially if you've known them and worked with them for a long time. Um, you can tell that, that there's a change. Um, I think, I've seen it from the floor nurses as well, who uh, were scared, you know, like a lot of them haven't been offered their second shot. They are now, mm. which is good, but like we had to fight for that. Right. Um, so they were scared. <laughs> they were scared um, because you'd be in a different, in a different position there. You'd be taking care of a patient all day without a gown on. We wear masks and, and I wear, and then suddenly they start, they start to cough and you're going, Oh, okay, well, I've taken care of you all day. And now we need to test you for COVID and put you on COVID precautions. And there's that element of fear. And, you know, are, are we ever going to be okay if a patient coughs or, or has a fever? You know what I mean? So there's that. And then the home care nurses too, like these are people going into, into their homes. And I've had a situation, I, I don't want to say too much, but um, it was really important for this person to go home. Um, they were receiving maid and they wanted to do that at home and they, they couldn't go early enough because there was no home care. There was nobody, they, they are off sick with their kids or they're off because their kid's school is closed because they're on outbreak Mm -hmm. or they themselves are sick or, or for what there's a million reasons that that snowballs and there, yeah, there was just no home care nurses that week. And to me, that blew my mind. Like, so now we have to keep this patient in hospital who just wants a peaceful death at home and we can't give that to them. So that's really hard too. Like we can't take care of these people um, because there's just not enough staff and, and that's going to wear on everybody, I think. And I think you'll see in the coming months, more and more nurses going on stress leave. And you know, if school continues to be closed, we have to stay home, you know, um, nurses, physicians, RTs, their parents too. So, you know, and then that drains the healthcare system of their staff even more. So it's, it's a lot of stress. Um, I think the most stressed I felt was at the very, very beginning of it. I walked into the hospital the first day we did screening and it was just chaos in the main uh, little corridor there by the Tim Hortons. 
And I remember stopping at the top of the stairs and taking a picture and going, oh my God, like what's happening? And I still think about that day on a really regular basis. Yeah, just, oh my God, what is about to happen? Just, yeah. you know, it's, it's a movie. We're living in a movie in a lot of cases. Yeah. Um, Alicia, what about you? What have, what have you seen mental health wise when it comes to working in a hospital and with the nurses in this pandemic? Yeah, it's funny you just said that about feeling like we're in a movie because it's something that my friends and I have said to each other really often. And, and it seems like every few weeks, um, one of us is saying, like, can you believe this is happening? You know, like, can you believe this is the reality that we're living in? Um, so I have definitely struggled this past year with my own mental health. It's... Um, and I think, like I said earlier, I think that the, what's at the root of all of that is the uncertainty that we've been facing. Um, I am a very, uh, like I, and I think this is true for a lot of nurses. Like I'm a kind of like a type A control type of person. And so when you're- Number six, um, talk with a medium which is really cool. And whether you believe or you don't believe, that's not for me to decide. Um, all I can do is talk to my guests about what they've experienced. And certainly this guest has experienced some pretty um, incredible and I, I guess paranormal things. So who am I to disagree? And this conversation was really cool. Uh, we talked about how she discovered this ability some of her family history, how she learned to control what she does, uh, some of the things she's seen in her practice, um, the role it can play in mental health, which is important. Uh, and of course, I know lots of people are always skeptical of this thing. So we talk about how she answers skeptics. Um, and uh, if you listen to this episode in whole, go into it with an open mind. And I think it's, it's really, really fascinating stuff. Um, and like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what to believe. I really don't. Um, but I, I trust that the people going through this really have experiences, however that may come to be. So for number six, please give it up for my guest, Deborah Savoy. Um, a sister who's autistic and she was nonverbal. She still is nonverbal. She's um, a beautiful person. And, uh, so growing up, being the oldest, I was the communicator for my sister. And I would just know what it was that she wanted and needed. Um, and whether that was just a sibling thing or whether I was using some form of telepathy with her, which I think most of the time I was and I still do today. When I look back, I mean, I'm 53 years old and she's, um, we're literally 16 months apart. Um, I think all my whole life with her has, I've used that telepathy and my mom would always ask me, you know, what does she need? What I don't understand. What does she need? I think Kim was very, very, um, uh, influential, my sister in helping me with that particular power of, of not, of, of connecting with someone's spirit, um, uh, not relying on the verbal, connection that we have with people, um, but connecting with her, her energy. 
to be able to facilitate her needs and help her to navigate the world. Um, the earliest, honestly, the earliest uh, memory I had or I have of using what I call my superpower um, was uh, I was about eight years old, maybe a little bit, maybe I was nine and I lived in Montreal and it was a pretty safe community that I lived in. And at that time it was nothing for kids to go for a walk to the corner store. And, uh, my cousins were with, with me and my sister and this, I, we, we passed this vehicle, uh, going into the, into the, uh, Depanar yeah. and the, uh, <laughs> I heard in my head, look at the car out front. And so I looked at this car out front that was parked kind of in front of the doors and the guy was reading his newspaper upside down and he was sort of peering over top of it to kind of make it look like, and I thought, geez, that's weird. And so I passed the car uh, as we were leaving and he pulled out and started to follow us. And uh, of course I'm like nine and we're, my cousin and I are goofing around and, and my, my sister and my other cousin had ran ahead and I heard in my head, be careful, memorize the license plate. That's what I heard. I'm not kidding you. Be careful, memorize the license plate. So I was like, okay, okay. Cause I, you know, it, again, you always think it's intuition, right? That, so that was going to kind of be what I asked, right? Uh, yeah. You always think it's intuition. I'm like, I'm nine years old, you know, I'm, I'm pretty street smart, but that's, so I said to my cousin, the car ahead, we got to remember the license plate. And she's like, what? And I said, you remember the first three digits and I'll remember the last three digits. So we walked up to the car, literally stopped and memorized it and started walking again. And the guy was a predator and he didn't have any pants on. And so we ran, obviously, because this guy was... Anyways, we ran home and uh, my, my parent, my mom called the police. The police came. Uh, she, I said, uh, she said, can you tell me what the car looked like while she's on the phone? And I said, well, we memorized the plates. And my mom's like, what? And so they caught the guy within 15 minutes of my mom calling because this guy had been um, a predator and had done a lot of really bad things in the community and they'd been looking for him for four years mm. and me just saying, so that's the first recollection I have real recollection of being spoken to that was not normal to me. So, and then I just started to trust my intuition and then followed through my life where I in my teen years had had uh, visitations. Um, uh, and I remember one odd thing that happened to me was I was in the, uh, in my, in my mom's car, we were driving down the road at a stop sign or at a stoplight. 
and there was a man in a truck beside me. And the next thing I knew I was sitting inside him and I looked over at myself and thought, holy shit, I got to get back inside me before the light turns green. (laughs) And then I shot back into my body. I could literally smell uh, the cigarettes he was smoking. I felt unwell. I was, uh, I, I could, it was the weirdest thing I, I think today that I've ever experienced was the transportation or the, the, I don't even know what you would call that where I just went inside this man and then shot out of him and back into my body and looked at my mom and said, Oh my God, I was just in that guy. I was just in that guy beside us. And my mom thought I was crazy, but, um, it, it, I've had these moments of, of, um, now I, I I need to say that I was raised by a nurse and had a Marine as a father. My mother was a nurse and my father was a, was a Marine. So if you couldn't, he, if you couldn't see it, if you couldn't touch it, if you couldn't feel it, it didn't exist. And so, you know, even though my grandmother was a medium and, uh, and so on and so forth, there was still this weird weirdness about even kind of talking about what it was that I was experiencing. But not long ago, my mom said to me that I really struggled with the darkness. I really struggled with uh, too much energy and being really, really sad and withdrawn. And there was times through my teen years that she very much worried about me. And uh, I, I truly believe that it was the, the energy that I was absorbing of the people around me. I didn't have a bad life. And so, you know, there was struggles at home, but I mean, I was very loved and taken care of. And I just feel like I picked up a lot of shit that didn't belong to me. Mm. So, yeah. You mentioned intuition and that it's funny because that's kind of what I was thinking, right? We always trust your gut. Um, you know, Always. it feels right. It feels wrong. Right. When you're in a situation, you see something, you're just, again, you can't really explain it. There's just that feeling. You're just like, mm, feels bad, feels wrong, or feels great. This feels right. Um, how much do we all have of this? I know you kind of mentioned a little bit and like just touched on that. We all can kind of feel energies in ways. How much of it is like, does, I guess the regular person, like, are we all able to pick up on that? And then we've just kind of quantified like certain words to, to these feelings, just to give it that definition. Um, Or like, do we all kind of have more of a power somewhere deep down that to get to a place of, you know, someone like you or, or, you know, somewhere along that spectrum? Like, is it a, a developed skill? Can you develop it? Number five was super, super cool. Um, it was one of those conversations where I, I didn't quite know where it was going to go. Um, she came on to talk about her business uh, of social artistry and her business, uh, City Love Flowers, in here in Ottawa, uh, which I thought was fascinating in itself. But this conversation turned into such a, a deep, intimate, vulnerable conversation 
about a deep sense of self, expectations on being a mother and women, uh, living authentically to yourself, masculinity, and and just these these stories that my guest was able to tell and how deep she she went with me. Um, again, when I'm on this podcast, I'm hosting. It's such a honoring experience to know that someone who I haven't even met in person, I met in a screen, feel that they can open up like that to me. Um, it's something I never take for granted. And this episode was just such a wonderful conversation and just speaks to the power that a podcast can bring out of people and from people to people. So at number five, uh, please uh, welcome my guest, Kate Punnett. I really understand. And before you become a mother, you think you're going to give birth and there's your home. Like there's, you build your nest and you have your babies, but it's not that straightforward birth trauma or not. So um, being, being, it, there's this quote. And, it, and it's a famous quote that says, um, if you're not connected to, uh, you're made of nature. And if you're not connected to nature, then what you're actually saying is you're not connected to yourself. And I think in the end, that's what I, what the whole process taught me that I really just needed to connect to myself. And my inner self is this really um, inspired artist that has a story to tell. And this is my story. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot there. And I, I know myself, I'm not a parent. And I actually had a, a, an old high school friend who's now a doula. And, and we were able to talk a little bit about that, about postpartum and about that sort of trauma you go through when you expect, like, like you said, like you expect everything's going well, everything's good. And all of a sudden the birth plan gets kind of thrown out the window and then, you know, you, and then you never really hear about like the stuff that comes afterwards, right? Like in the stories and, and I'm glad more people like yourself and, and others who are sharing that story as, as women, as mothers um, about those topics that aren't necessarily spoken about in, us, in, the, in the larger conversation of things. I do want to talk about healing um, because that's something I've very much become interested in in this story of healing over this pandemic myself at the beginning of the pandemic i went through an absolute my whole routine was gone and that and i was built my whole life around my routine and that threw me through one of some of the worst times of my life and then i went through a breakup like a month into it and that went me sent me to the kind of the bottom of the barrel and i found doing these things i love these things that really make me happy, really healed me. And I came out so much stronger on the other side. And I just, you talked about how being connected to the earth and, and doing these things healed you. Can you go a little bit deeper into that, if you don't mind, and whatever you're comfortable sharing? Like, what was it? What were like the feelings like before and after about this healing process, doing what you were doing and expressing yourself through art like? Um, I think that it was that, I think it was understanding that I had a language, um, that was not used every day, you know, mm -hmm. and that it was kind of a secret language. And as soon as I was able to, um, 
communicate with it. I felt, um, well, I felt free, but first and mostly I feel vulnerable and, um, I hadn't realized that I had created a mystique about myself in a way with these walls around it and a perception and, um, the language of vulnerability is so open hearted. You just can't, you can't, if you're attracting um, beauty and forgiveness and openness and healing and connection, that's, what's going to come into that, you know, um, a lot of other stuff comes in too, but you're dealing with it without this wall. And I think that for me, being an artist is living in vulnerability um, and, I started to take chances of, of putting out things into the world and working with people in new ways that took a lot of heart. And um, I feel like people together as a community, I realized that I, I could share my grief with, with other women, uh, with other mothers, with neighbors, and I could hold theirs as well. And I started to see the world totally different. You know, I started to realize that, Oh, Okay all everyone else's wall is up too, you know, and we're, we're just, I mean, my favorite thing to do when my kids were really little was, is to do hand, handcrafting and knitting and crocheting with, with women while the kids played, because that that's when the real stuff would come out, you know, mm. it's not at the park with a coffee to strangers. It's this intimacy, um, creating things with our hands and, and just with an open heart together. So I think the process for me, was um is this tension of of embracing some fear and knowing that i just couldn't i couldn't heal alone mm. inside myself i had to let it pour out and the way it's poured out is manifested into this um it is manifested into every design that I create, every flower that I plant in my yard and and connection I make with a neighbor. Um, every donation I make, it's, it's all in that moment of just like vulnerable me. That's something that like truly resonates with me. And when I was sharing a little bit what I went through in the pandemic with you, um, coming out on the other side, being vulnerable, I've always been an open and vulnerable person, but being vulnerable in this particular circumstance for me, like it opened up so much of my eyes and now all I want to do is share it um particularly right. with with young men um right you know when we talk about things like toxic masculinity and mm-hmm. and and the way men are brought up and kind of taught to express themselves their emotions their relationships you know I I always joke that one of the biggest things that helped heal me is musicals. And I, I can't tell you why I never listened to them really before. I used to make fun of my brother for listening to them. <laughs> and then here I am doing full on dance routines to the greatest <laughs> showman. Um, and, 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 you know, it just, it made me so happy and I loved it. I would sing every word and it just made me feel so good that I was just like, you know, however you want to express yourself uh, as a, as a man is, is masculine in a way. And it's not, it can be feminine in terms of a traditional sense, but really it doesn't make you any less of a man as long as you're doing what makes you happy. Thank and- you for saying that. My, my son, it's one of the reasons um, homeschooling is, is a big thing for us is I don't think 
culture is um, expresses what you're talking about well. And um, my husband's had similar, mm-hmm. um, uh, a similar journey with this toxic masculinity. And um, it's important for our son to not have that, you know, he had, he's absorbed it to, to some degree. Of course, we're not, we're not, he's not here sheltered up or anything, but yeah, it's, these are big things for, for boys right now. I come from it. I was a, I was a small town competitive hockey player and, uh, (laughs) you know, you know, any number four connected with, um, an old friend from high school. She was a year older than me and, but we, you know, circled each other in parties and it was so great to catch up and see where, you know, where we kind of both ended up. Um, it's really cool that, you know, people can go in these, these different directions, not speak for a decade and, um, end up where they are and have such a f- cool conversation. And it's no secret that as a man who has no kids, I am not familiar with the birth process. Um, and I, I love kind of learning about it and really kind of like opening my mind and, and not shying away from those conversations. Um, and that's what we get into here. She's a doula. She's also an RMT. She's the host of the Pregnancy Prep Podcast. So I think it's really cool. And we talk about, you know, what a doula is, pregnancy, some some myths and misconceptions maybe about giving birth and postpartum and the roles of partners, um, how birth is no longer just for same-sex couples. Uh, and it was a really interesting conversation. And I learned a lot. Um, and it was great to reconnect uh, with my guest here, who comes in at number four, Ainsley Kirkpatrick. The world that we kind of live in is how we, you know, you, you take something like pregnancy and, and, and being a doula in this process, and you can kind of put it into content for, for people and offer it in a platform that's easy to digest and eat and easy to, you know, like you said, like you only put in 15, 20 minutes. So it's like, okay, guy, you can't read a 300 page book, but God, you can listen to a 15 minute podcast yeah. once a week. Come on. Like how long do you poop? Like just put it on. <laughs> you can do this. <laughs> what, you know, cause obviously you don't come from a broadcasting background or, and I don't know if you're no. a huge podcasting fan, but like what really pushed you to this podcast idea? And was it like something like you just, you're sitting with these couples and men, you're just like, oh my God, like, <laughs> obviously we, I need to help them out more because this is not happening. Like, where was this, this shift for you? I just talk so much and I wanted to force <laughs> people to listen. Um, no, I, uh, there were, there were so many podcasts that were really helpful to me as a birth worker and as a woman who one day might become pregnant and be a mom. Um, and there was nothing. For the men like it, it just was really natural there was no like i need to help the men moment it was just like oh this is what i'm passionate about i really like the education part of stuff and the men seem to be the people who would benefit from that education because the women are seeking it out themselves and again i don't want to only single out men like this could be a lesbian partner as well like just the non-birthing parent mm-hmm. They tend to, again, not be connected to the pregnancy, so they're not seeking out all of that information. So I wanted to make it easy and accessible. And at the start of this pandemic, because I'm a massage therapist, like, I couldn't work. Yeah. (laughs) And we had just, like, I mean, just days moved into our very first house. It was a brand new build. So I had, like, no deep cleaning. 
that needed to be done. It was a brand new house. We wanted to make sure we could afford a mortgage payment on one salary. So we weren't painting. We weren't buying a couch. We weren't getting a kitchen table. I was just sitting in a white box, a beautiful white box, which I was very grateful to have gotten (laughs) into. But I was like, there's nothing to do. I can't massage people. It's not a job that I can do from home. There's no way that I could make massage therapy a job that I'm doing virtually. Um, and then, yeah, doulas weren't allowed in the hospital anymore because there was an overrun of people in the hospitals. So, man, I can't do anything. I got to figure out a way to move this online. <laughs> that, that's, I love how people pivot and it's how this pandemic has maybe forced some people out of their comfort zone and, and mm-hmm. tried things like this because it's, yeah. it's going to be very helpful. Uh, I hope and- so. Cause it's brand, it's like pretty much brand new, right? You only have a couple episodes yeah. out at this point. Well, yeah, there's only three out right now. Okay. I actually cheated a little bit. So I, I released a bunch this summer. I had seven that I released, never told anyone, did not advertise it, didn't do anything. I was just trying to like, see if this was something I could do. And like, people were actually listening. Like I was getting feedback from strangers. I even got feedback from somebody who went to CPHS and went to Arkland. And in one of the episodes, I think it's like the fifth episode, I accidentally say, I'm Ainsley Gardner. And then I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm Ainsley Kirkpatrick. <laughs> that is not my <laughs> name anymore. And I don't know how to edit. So I left it in and she found me and messaged me. And she was like, I've listened for five episodes and had no idea it was you. <laughs> Such a small world. That's, that's yeah. awesome. But what I was finding was I wasn't able to do it weekly. Well, like I was just lazy and not doing it weekly um and what I kept thinking was like at one day I will just sit down and I'll record like seven episodes and then I'll have them in the bank and that'll make it easier and I just I just never did that Mm. (laughs) even though I had nothing but time I never did it so what I ended up doing was I unpublished all of the episodes I had took them off the air and I'm now releasing them one at a time as I record more so now okay. I have stuff in the bank. <laughs> Interesting. I'm not, I'm not a person who usually has stuff in the bank either. I usually record and then release it the next week. And I procrastinate just like you. And <laughs> I won't edit anything until like the day it's coming out. I'm like, oh, why did I do that? I had a whole week to do stuff. And, you know, straight I, up, I don't edit. Like, <laughs> I don't know how. I just oh, sit in fair. a closet and talk for 15 minutes, listen back. And I'm like, it worked. <laughs> That's the great thing about podcasts. So you can be authentic and people don't really care for the most part about stumps yeah. and bumbles and and you know yeah. I, see, I just did it. I was going to say and saying you know and then I just said you know before I said it it's one of the great things I did want to touch on uh because you referenced it a couple times with uh being a doula but not having the traditional male female dynamic as parents we live I mean we're from a small town just outside of Ottawa so I mean diversity was never really the town's calling card. I've referenced it a lot on this podcast for many reasons, but I'm wondering now in your experience, as we've grown older, the town has really started to expand pretty drastically. And you also have, you know, Elmont and getting bigger and and other towns like that. Are you dealing more with maybe uh, same sex couples, maybe uh, transgender uh, people wanting to be parents? Um, Like, is that something that maybe is, starting to boom in this so first I want to say I went through your podcast and found a bunch that I wanted to listen to I I found like um 
one on addiction and one on uh, multiple personality disorders. Oh, yeah. But then I found Austin's and Riley's and I was like, I know these people. I'm going to listen to those ones. And I laughed out loud. And my husband was like, what are you listening to when you were talking with Austin about Carlton Place being so small? And one of you was like, I mean, we didn't even have sushi. <laughs> I was like, dude, we still don't have sushi. Yeah. You have an <laughs> like, Indian really restaurant, good point. though. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. So good. Okay. I love their butter yeah. chicken. <laughs> anyway. Um, so I'm not seeing it a ton. Definitely um, more lesbian couples who have children, but I was not a part of their journey through pregnancy as a doula, just as a massage therapist. Um, but I was incredibly, incredibly lucky. The program that I took when I became a doula, and I've taken other programs with them since that, um, are very, they're in Toronto, and they're like very inclusive, and they're really careful about their language. One of the founders is a lesbian. They do deal with transgendered people. They deal with multiple races. And so they are so careful with their language. And it just made me want, like from the very beginning, to be really careful with my language. Because I'm hoping I can deal with lots of different couples and lots of different situations. That would be great because they need support too. Yeah, absolutely. And I again, I know nothing about it. But there was the story of transgender couple, but uh, the man was giving birth. And I got a lot of people... Um, very up in our, that's, that's not what I want to get into, but I think yeah. it's important that these programs and, you know, people like yourself who are in this line of work are opening themselves up to this, this idea of inclusivity, because, yeah. you know, sometimes with doctors and, you know, you're going to experience probably some discrimination with that. And a doula would be, I think would be a perfect person to be in that corner. Yeah. Because you've you know them, you you've understood their plan, and you yeah. can be that mediator between. And there's already enough going on with labor. Like there's pain involved. It can be scary. Like they don't need to have an extra layer in a healthcare system feeling discriminated against. So yeah, a doula would be great for those people. Because again, she is. She's in your corner. She's there to help, and she's there to help you get like the birth story that you want. Right. I mean, as much as possible, obviously, yeah. like birth is unpredictable, but <laughs> it shouldn't, it should be like the birth that's unpredictable and not your healthcare staff. Like yes. you should be able to rely on them. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, like when you are meeting with the um, people and, and going through the consultation and discussing options, are you typically dealing with like more first time parents because that's the nervous thing? Yeah. And maybe like once you kind of have the kid, you're like, oh, I mostly understand it now and, and can yeah. go with two, three, four, five. Yeah. It's all of the births that I've been a part of. All of the people who have contacted me are first time parents. Right. Would you say it's younger too? Because I'm just trying to, like, I don't know how popular this type of work was, you know, bef before, I don't know, society got a little bit more open to other ideas like was it was how long aligned is like do, do doulas really go back is well, it a yeah. long time profession so birth is a funny thing like the whole process of birth doulas have been around literally forever like absolutely forever um birth kind of took a weird trajectory because it was like something that women did that was safe that's like literally how Earth got populated. <laughs> um, so, like, without medicine, without any intervention, it was something that just from the beginning of time we knew how to do. And 
having like a woman in your tribe or a woman in your village or a woman kind of in your surroundings who helped with it since the beginning of time. Doula mm. is literally like a Greek word, woman who serves. So it's not a new thing at all. But then medical interventions kind of came to be a thing. And like there was a part of our history that's not that far in the past that like women were literally knocked unconscious like they were not awake during the birth because people were like well why if we don't want them to be in pain we have all this medicine we're so smart now like why don't we just make sure that they don't feel anything and what we're finding out now as midwives and doulas become big again is that it's not this hippy dippy thing it's not this this silly you know like earth type thing it's the way that we can make sure that moms and babies can bond and parents and babies can bond and birth doesn't have to be this really scary really painful thing there are ways to get through it that our body just knows Hmm. so it seems like it's kind of a new thing but it's like the oldest thing in the world (laughs) i read and again, this is the internet, so I have no idea. And I do this all the time. I'm like, I read this thing where, and I have no idea if it's true, but that giving birth is, it was either the second or third most painful experience a human can experience. Uh, and the first was being burned alive, which is like, oh my God, you're like <laughs> comparing those two. What the hell? Yeah, great. But you just um, kind of mentioned that you can get through it. I mean, I'm not going to say pain free, but m- make it more manageable. Like, is this... I don't think that it's realistic to say that you could get through it pain-free, mm. but I feel like it's very realistic to say that you could get through it trauma-free. Like you could, you could be in pain without suffering, knowing that there's an end to it, knowing that this is not a scary thing. Knowing- I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise that the top episodes of 2021 were also the first three that I put out this year. They've had the most time to be listened to. Um, but all of those, I mean, I started 2021 20, real strong with some really awesome guests. So hopefully I'm going to be able to do that for 2022. Um, and uh, in episode three, the third most downloaded uh, episodes of the year, um, I talked with fellow ginger and alcoholic host of the unashamed alcoholic podcast about what that's like, what, sobriety is what you know the story of her kind of realizing and discovering um being an alcoholic and everything that happened before and what's happened now uh we talked about her road to recovery um how she remains sober some of the stigma and if you've never listened to her podcast the unashamed alcoholic whether you are sober or you still drink or you know you don't even have a problem. You should just really immerse yourself in in the stories and the guests that she shares on her podcast. It is absolutely tremendous and inspiring, and I can't say enough good things about it. And I think you should really listen. Um, so at number three this year of 2021, please give it up for my guest Becca. You know I'm just having a little laugh and, and being cutesy or whatever, but I did want to get your opinion on it as like an alcoholic and someone who you know, might see that and it might be a trigger or, or you, like you said, it did affect you and you used it mm-hmm. as a rationalization. And I often go into this internal debate in, in my, 
my own realm of just kind of like mental illness and depression and anxiety is you, you see people kind of use it as jokes. And, mm-hmm. and to me, I'm like, like, it doesn't really bother me that people use it as a joke. I'm, I'm like, you know, like it's, it's fine. It kind of normalizes it a little bit. Like, right. but there are people who do get really passionate and frustrated that people do use it. Mm-hmm. Same cases as like, you know, oh, I'm a little OCD where it's OCD people are like, you know, you really don't know. So yeah. I, I guess like when you see stuff like that or, and when you talk to other people and when you in the support groups now in your podcast, like, mm-hmm. are those like a lot more harmful than we might think? Um, and, and people sharing it kind of willy nilly? I, I don't know, because I think, again, there's like, uh, there's, there's two separate groups. There's, there's, you know, people who like moms who can drink, um, and, and just have like a glass, uh, you know, a day or more a once a week or whatever is like a safe amount. And then there's me, like ones who are like me, who are just like, oh, good. You know, someone else is, is making this acceptable and it's okay. And it was really dangerous for me because I bought into that. Well, now, now that I'm a a mother, it's this, this is still required. It's, it's still, so it was like a real balance of trying to figure out, do I have a problem versus like this narrative that's saying it's okay. All moms need to drink. Um, I, I, I don't know. Like I find there's a lot of marketing of things like, um, you know, the, (laughs) the mommy's juice, like mom, you know, wine glasses that say that or stuff. There was an ad that came out um, recently that was advertising, like having, you know, a little mini fridge hidden, you know, we're all home. The idea of like everyone's stuck at home with their families and kids, like have this in that mini fridge tucked away in your closet somewhere with, you know, our juice and champagne. So you can drink. I mean, the idea is that you're hiding drinking alone. And it's like, well, a lot of people who have a problem, were doing that or are doing that. Like it's, it's a, it, it's dangerous. Like there's a, there's a line. It can Mm -hmm. be funny and it can be really like, you're sending a terrible message that it's okay to drink, hide and drink alone. I mean, you shouldn't have to drink to get through anything. And what kids are not right. Like the, the idea, like when you get sober is like all the things you have to suddenly go through sober, you can do. And Mm -hmm. parenting, if you're drunk, like, you know, that's not, it's not the, not the wisest thing. Um, so to promote that, uh, I don't, I don't, I think there's a, there's a, an issue of like just smart advertising. Um, I think there needs to be more education around that. And a lot of people are starting to speak up about that. Um, I'm going to be talking to an author. She wrote sippy cups are not for Chardonnay. And she was a big proponent of the mommies need to drink club. She kind of started it and then came out as an alcoholic. So Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, it's fascinating to, to see like the both really playing on both sides of it. Um, You just, you just never know who or how someone can be affected by that messaging. Yeah. Cause I mean, to someone that, you know, doesn't, suffer from addiction and everything like that's like a fun little toy it's like oh yeah cool but then yeah you're right like that line that balancing act of you know how we all interact as people it just I mean there's so many facets of it it 
it's hard to differentiate. And I had a great question and I forgot because of that, <laughs> that point. I mean, the thing is you just never know who's dealing with what, right? Like, yeah. you know, there's the, there's a lot of throwaway comments you see online from mm-hmm. people you might follow or whatever about like, you know, make sure that she, you know, she, the wine's stocked up at home tonight or whatever. And it's just like, I just, you know, sometimes it's like, I, I as an alcoholic go like, I want to be like, that's oh, not the best solution. But like, I forget that other people can drink normally and it doesn't mean anything to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, I have to think of like, what's, what's my story versus what's other people's story. It's not, it's not all the same. Um, I, I think there's a more of a, um, a responsibility on advertising. That's, that's one thing. And then people just have compassion that not everyone has the same, the, you know, the same background, the same family history, like all these things like you talk about. Yeah. The, it's for me. And it's something I've noticed as I've grown older is like the romanticizing of drinking yeah, as opposed to, you know, other substances, whether it's cannabis or, or, you know, psychedelics or, or everything, right? Like those, I mean, cannabis now in Canada, it's a, it's legal now and whatever, mm-hmm. but like when we, you know, I'm really fascinated in, in psychedelics and psilocybin and, and how that affects our brains and, and, you know, the, but like they're so stigmatized, but with alcohol, which arguably has, is much more dangerous and has destroyed many more lives. Mm-hmm. We're like, <laughs> like, throwing up the the banners everywhere and if you go to you know popular culture like what do they do in the movies when they go through a breakup they go to the bar and like just shoot back scotch and whiskey it's everything right they you're sitting there with a glass of wine and and you know it, it goes to what you said about like we don't need that to cope with problems but we're like we're almost taught like right from when we start watching movies and tv shows that when we have an issue and especially with a, like with grief or mm-hmm. with trauma, like the response is to go out and get drunk and drown it in booze. Yeah. Drown your sorrows or it's for anything, right? Like it's, you know, celebrate like a big promotion. Like, you know, you go out with your coworkers and whatever, let's go ever, mm-hmm. ever, let's go for drinks. The thank us set the, you know, happy, happy hour, right? Like uh, weddings, funerals, whatever it is like now now there's like a sip and seize for babies right like um and it's like and it's champagne or wine or whatever like every single event has alcohol is like alcohol based you know like it's not and it's weird at those things if there isn't alcohol like if you someone says you know there's no wine or there's no alcohol at this wedding everyone would be like shocked and like, like we're to go you know yeah, like, <laughs> like, Christmas parties like what do you mean it like drink tickets are you serious yeah, yeah yeah or there's no drinking like now you know a lot of functions like you know in the government like there's no drinking now and like that sort of thing and yeah, that's mm. all these complaining about that like it's it's in, ingrained you are still you are assumed to drink unless you say you don't yeah like it's assumed everybody drinks unless you raise your hand and say, I don't drink. And I started saying that when I stopped drinking and like, you know, the whole table turns and looks at you like, as if you're, you know, you're, you've just landed on earth. Like, what do you, what, like, why, why? Then the questions mm-hmm. come out and you can, you know, then you've got yeah. to figure out how you want to answer that. Well, it's, it's when I think back to 
being younger and like, I'm ashamed to say it now, but I mean, in the truth of transparency, like you go to parties and someone's not drinking or they're taking it easier. Like, you know, you're pressuring them like, no, come on, like have another drink. Like, let's go. Let's let's party. We're here for fun. Like, come on. And when they don't, like, you're just, you know, it's, they're the downer, right? Like they're, they're the wet blanket. Or when someone's not drinking at a function, like you, you're, you're like kind of getting comfortable around it. Like you're yeah. like, Ooh, like this person's like, you know, like they're not fun or they're, they're right. They're, there's all the stigmas, right? On. Like there's, there's all the assumptions and stigmas. Like you're not fun or you're now going to judge me because I'm, I, when I, like, I don't want to be around you later when I'm drunk and you're still sober, you know, like, cause then you're judging you. They think you like, you're judging them because of how much like, well, now you're going to count my drinks. Like, no, mm. I don't like, I don't care how much you drink. Yeah. When I do th- something stupid, you're going to remember and tell everybody yeah. that type of stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's no, so you're interesting. the, well, you're the odd man out. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about like how you kind of like the, the withdrawal process of, mm-hmm. of, of becoming sober. Um, one of the big things with the pandemic is when the first lockdown happened, people were like up in arms that they kept LCBOs and liquor stores open. Yeah. Not understanding that if you were to cut these people off from the alcohol, like they would go through withdrawal and end up in the hospital and take mm-hmm. up resources and, and you know, like already overwhelmed. Yeah. Potentially harm themselves or others in, in other yeah. cases. Yeah. So, I mean, again, be as open or closed as you want about this question or just brush it off. But like, what was that? Like, how hard was it to like come off of it? Like, I don't think people understand. All right. Number two, uh, trigger warning uh, on this episode and on this clip. Um, Not an easy listen, but um, I think really eye-opening. And I think you should listen if you have the capacity to do so. Um, Because we talk with a mental illness and mental health reform advocate about living with dissociative identity disorder, DID. And if you're not familiar with what that is, it's living with multiple, formerly known as multiple personality disorder. Um, We talk about a lot of hard things. He grew up um, in a very traumatic way. Um, And, and he talks about that. So that the trigger warning goes for that. Um, But we also talk about the manifestations of his illness. You know, what, what it actually feels like to be in an episode when you are not in control of your body, um, how the mental health system failed him and why he's trying to reform it, and what made him want to share the story. Because I think it's important as people who are open, and I assume if you're listening, you are open about mental health and you you care about mental health. And we absolutely have a long way to go with stigma around the easy stuff, you know, the stuff like depression and anxiety. I'm not minimizing or downplaying what depression and anxiety are because they're absolutely difficult to go through. But we, what I mean by that is as a society, we are not ready to talk about the heavier things when it comes to mental illness, whether that's schizophrenia, whether that's borderline personality disorder, whether that's bipolar um, and whether it's dissociative identity disorder, we're still not there. And there's still a lot of stigma around these these mental illnesses. So I really appreciated um, my guest coming on, uh, and I'm proud to be able to call him a friend now. And uh, I think you can get a lot from it uh, as he is candid 
and honest and unapologetically himself on his mission to reform mental health. So at number two, uh, it was my guest, Victor Jansen. Trauma um, and, uh, and also suffer from uh, hypervigilance. And that's been like 45, 45 years of uh, just being always on, being threatened. Um, and and with that, what comes with that is uh, lack of sleep, um, what comes with that is uh, constant body armoring where my body is always tense. Uh, it's, it's ready to fight. Um, and you have to understand as a, as a, as a young boy, um, I'm, I'm the youngest in a family of, of, of two other older siblings and my parents. And uh, so uh, the, and I'll be brutally honest with you, the, the whole concept of shit flows downward uh uh, is totally applicable to to how I was brought up. Yeah, and you met so multiple personalities. This is something, I guess, Hollywood kind of. I don't know if they over or sensationalize it, right? Like they, you have like you're. I'm like talking to you, and all of a sudden your other personality like pops up, and I'm talking to a new person. Can you describe? And I'm sure it's very complex, but just what it's kind of like living with multiple personality disorder or DID? Sure. I'll, I'll give you a, I'll give you a prime example of, of, I mean, I've been diagnosed late in the onset and I just want to put some context around this. Mm-hmm. Um, see my, when I, I mean, I, I grew up in a, an abusive, uh, neglectful family, um, uh, you know, from what I can remember from four years old to, to 18. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> And it's through those uh, exchanges uh, of living in that that type of environment um, that my body developed uh, uh, multiple personalities to to protect me. Um, and and one of the one of the earliest personalities that I have, uh, his name's Harris. Um, it's H A R A S, and he was with me the very first uh, we were introduced after my very first traumatic experience. So he's been with me for 45 years. Um, and, and I'll just put this in the context for you regarding that, that personality. Um, he used to protect me. Now it's a love hate relationship. Uh, I can tell you that from experience um about a year and a half ago, I had a, uh, he came out in me one night, um, where, and, and, and what, how it appears is, you know, it could appear that, that I may, I may have been, you know, in a drunken state, um, because I was stumbling, uh, I was mumbling, you know, you, they couldn't understand anything I was saying. Um, I went into my backyard, uh, uh, and that physical manifestation of that, that personality, um, literally tried to run me through a brick wall, um, tried to bear, you know, stake me into the ground, like a, like a tent stake. Uh, you know, I woke up the next day, um, still wearing the same clothes, uh, covered in blood, uh, had multiple lacerations in my, in my mouth. Um, and, uh, all my ribs were bruised and eventually it turned out that I actually broke a couple ribs, uh, in the process. Um, so when you wake up from that, <clears throat> I can tell you that, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's jarring to say the least. Um, I mean, I've had dissociative 
episodes where one minute I'm in my house and the next minute I'm strapped to a hospital bed, not knowing why I'm there, um, you know, and having, having, uh, uh, <clears throat> medical professionals tell me that I was there because of a, of a, of a drug overdose. Um, and, and, and knock on wood, uh, you know, my whole experience uh, of, of, as, as an adult and as a lifestyle, um, it's been pretty hard. Uh, I lived a hard life. Uh, most people don't see it as a hard life, but they don't see me um, outside of work. And, and, you know, I used to work in rock and roll uh, back in the 90s and, 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 and early 2000s and then uh, decided to become corporate. And uh, um, so, yeah, so, so when, you, when you have multiple personalities, oddly enough, I've been able, I've been so good at compartmentalizing those entities or my life into, in, into certain compartments. Um, and, and so far, none of my alternate personalities have ever impacted my work life at all. Um, it's just everything after work life, uh, you know, the 12 hours or whatever you want to call it after that, that's where it gets a little dicey. Um, but yeah, I've, 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 I've had like, there's, there's holes in my memory. There's, there's holes where, uh, you know, you can't, you can't chalk it up to sleepwalking. Um, I mean, just the other night, uh, I had a, a night terror, um, that, you know, I usually get them every night anyways, but, uh, this particular one, uh, I remember waking up from it. Um, but I don't remember anything else. And there's a two hour window there where, uh, uh, you know, I have no recollection, um, I know that I took a beating because uh, my ribs are, are pretty much done in most times, uh, groins done in, um, different body parts are done in. And it's interesting because through the beatings, I, I've, I've, I've learned which personality has come out and which one hasn't. There's, there's two of them uh, that are on the more violent side, and that is this Harris individual and then an individual that we labeled as the beast and the beast is just all about pure rage. He's all about, um, uh, he's all about just hurting, hurting me, uh, really hurting this physical body. Uh, so that, uh, when I say that, I mean, the head is, is, is fair game. My groin, everything is fair game. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's a little jarring. Um, there's no way of stopping it. There's no magic pill. Um, but it's par for the course. So hopefully that answers your, your question. Yeah. And uh, to follow up on that, like, so you're, you're talking about these, these beatings, you know, you're waking up with covered in blood, your root, your groin, your ribs. So, and you kind of mentioned it a little bit that like, it was kind of like you were stumbling around drunk and I, I don't know if you have an answer. Cause obviously you're, you're not coherent in the a sense to know what's happening but like how is this manifesting for you like do you like see like almost like a hallucination in your brain or or like it's almost like watching a movie like you're kind of third party to what's happening like are you beating yourself up when you're going through these things like how does it manifest kind of mentally and physically when another personality comes out so it's it's a it's a complete checkout of this version of conscious self. Um, so so to put it in context, you know you you got this version of self that's speaking to you, but you have to understand that I'm not alone. There's there's all my personalities have a connection through me to you to this conversation. I don't have a connection back to them. Um, so 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's uh, uh, it's a complete checkout, and and I don't see, um, I don't, I don't have any memory. I don't have any recollection. Uh, I just pick up the pieces and and keep moving on. Um, I mean, you know, the closest thing that that I've had this year that that uh, I don't know what you want to call it is um, uh, I've had one night uh, where. Uh, uh, all my, all my personalities tried to come out at the same time. Um, and, uh, it's not pretty to watch. And, uh, it was, uh, it was an internal battle. Um, and, uh, this might sound ludicrous to some people. Um, but I can tell you, it's probably the first time that, uh, um, I've ever hurt, uh, this version of conscious self has ever been able to hurt, uh, Paris, um, and uh, I, I want I want to put it in a broader context here. You see, for the last I'm on 44 weeks now, um, where uh, I've suffer um, I suffer nightly episodes. Uh, on average, they last about two hours, and I get to re-experience on every level: your emotional, your mental, your physical, and your spiritual. Um, I get to 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 re-experience uh, most of my childhood trauma. Um, and, and to put this in the context, um, so yeah, I'm a five time, uh, suicide survivor. Um, you know, when I was 10 years old, uh, I tried to commit suicide three times in one summer was successful once with a drowning and just by chance, uh, someone was walking past the pool and saw me floating and brought me to life. Um, but when they pulled me out of the pool, I was unconscious, no pulse. And, and so, I'm not going to spoil it for anyone for my interpretation. And I've been to the other side. I know what's there. Um, so when I look at the world these days, I mean, I look at, I look at everything that I see Ryan and, and to be quite honest, I'm not intimidated uh, nor scared by um, anything man wants to throw at me um, because I've been to the other side. You can't scare the walking dead. Uh, and I know I'm not saying and just like that, we're here, number one. Uh, and this one was uh, a doozy. And again, a trigger warning if you listen to this episode um, for sexual abuse. So if you don't have the capacity, uh, please keep that in mind uh, And it, when you listen to this clip. Uh, but we talk about surviving a cult. Um, she's a strength training coach now, mental illness advocate and cult survivor. And she grew up as a Jehovah's Witness. And we talk about you know, her childhood, her upbringing, some of the up outdated and patriarchal belief systems um, and why she considers Jehovah's Witness a cult. Um, we talk about her story on what led her to leaving this, which also in turn leaving her family behind and her journey of healing. Um, again, another hard episode, but when I, you know, I'm proud to call her a friend now. She is the coolest and strongest people I know um, and what she does now to, to, you know, break apart what Jehovah's witnesses are. Um, and I know she's been quiet on social media for a while as she continues her healing journey, but you know, she, uh, she's just a constant inspiration. Um, and it's no surprise. She came in at number one with this story. So, uh, without further ado, the top 
episode of 2021, the most downloaded episode, goes to my guest, Sierra. So much more. All the they time. Could, they could like, they're like, we're so because close to be- closing the deal. <laughs> You became a return visit. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, yeah. Mom, why did you do this? She's like, I don't know. I just wanted to hear what they had to say. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, like, the way you've described it, I mean, yes, there seems to be some, like, very kind of, like, red flags, you know, with the, the conversion and, and the kind of brainwashing as, as the kids are growing growing up. But... Like, would you define this cult? Like, is it good? Is it bad? You know, you said people with good hearts are going to stay on earth um, as as what they believe and and live forever in paradise. So you'd think that they would have good hearts on and like be good people, just believe this funky thing. So like inherently, is this like good or is it, is it bad? I think that, Anyone that chooses to only have men in power and to only listen to men and to not listen to women and to not listen to children, for example, um, they actually are losing their tax exemption in Australia because there was over a thousand cases of child sex abuse that went unreported. And so the Australian commission, they signed the they put something together for these organizations to sign on to, to say that they would pay compensation to, ty- to child sex abuse survivors and Jehovah's Witnesses refused to sign on to it. So they're now receiving, um, ta- they're now getting their tax exemption revoked. Um, to go a little bit into my story, mm. I... I have struggled with mental illness from as young as I can remember, to be honest with you. Um, fear, that fear-based walking on the street, am I going to get assaulted? Am I going to get beaten? Am I going to get robbed? That's how they keep you in there, right? Because no one outside is safe. Everyone outside are, are worldly, they're unbelievers, and they're just out to get you. Um, <clears throat> so... I have struggled with anxiety and depression and only now after leaving and in my teen years and in my adult years, did I understand that that's what was happening to me when I was younger. You know, my mom would be like, I don't know why you sleep for 14 hours. Like we're going to get you like a tonic or something to like, or an, a, like a, a natural drink, because obviously you're not getting the vitamins and minerals that you need if you're sleeping for hours on end. Little did we know it was, depression you know um there's a narrative in the organization and it's about uh putting on the new personality so there's this constant narrative of being better and doing more so your worth your worth just diminishes and as a woman when you have literally nothing to look forward to other than getting married and bearing children, like, to me, that was never something that I wanted that never resonated with me at all. I never wanted to just be a vessel. Um, So I was sexually assaulted in my teens. And what has to happen is you go into a judicial committee meeting. 
So me, as a teen girl, there I am, sitting in a room with three middle-aged white men. And they're asking me intimate questions about what happened to me, if I screamed seven times, if I did this and if I did that. Because they also have this rule, um, it's called a two-witness rule. So what that means is you have the victim, you have the perpetrator, and then you have a third person that needs to, to see the event happen in order for them to acknowledge that it happened. So it's a constant cycle of victim blaming. So you, you're in that room as a, as a 14 year old or as a, <clears throat> a teen and you know they're asking you, oh, well, obviously if you didn't scream that many times, you must have liked it and yeah. It's just, uh, after that happened, um, <clears throat> they privately reproved me, which Sorry, what means is, they, okay. took away, they took away my privileges in the congregation. So I was no longer allowed to comment and do <clears throat> the small privileges that I had as a woman, right? <clears throat> so I wasn't allowed to comment, and that's really when my mental health took a massive hit I through when I when I started going to school in grade eight I was suffering from an eating disorder and that kind of hit its peak when this happened um, I started therapy but my dad was like mm, well it's really expensive do you think that you need it or should you just like pray more and study more and Jehovah will help you yeah so you can see how the cycle of abuse could easily spiral out of control, like what happened in Australia there, where if you're expecting that third witness to corroborate whatever happened, but like you have, you know, those victim crimes where there's the victim and, and the, you know, victimizer, like how are you ever supposed to seek justice at all? Um, so and there's there's also there's also parts in the organization that say that you should never like accuse another individual in the congregation, and like this is this experience is so not single to me. Like so many women and males in the organization have the exact same story as me, right. and that's that's really where my issue lies is that <clears throat> they won't bring it to the police. They'll hide it under the rug or they'll just move the brother that did that to another congregation and then not tell the congregation and he will repeat his cycle of abuse. <clears throat> right. So, so they protect, they protect the, the perpetrator and they do not protect victims. And not only not protect, but then, you know, kind of like destroy your life, right? Like if this is all you know, and this has been your yeah. whole life, and all of a sudden they're taking away like the few, like you said, the few kind of privileges you have of, as a woman in this that like, and now they're like, okay, well, this happened to you. So you're already dealing with the trauma, already dealing with, you know, all the, the feelings that happen with the mental illness. And then they're taking away like the aspects of your life that may be the only things you could look forward to. And now you, you're left at nothing. 
And so the other thing is, although I was privately reproved, um, like one of the people in the meeting, he was uh, like one of my closest friends' dads. So I basically became blacklisted with my friends. And they were like, you probably shouldn't associate with her. So the few friends that I had after that, you know, it became a struggle to want to stay. And um, so I, tr I left for a little period of time. So I actually found strength training when I was just at the tail end of 17. And I had a personal trainer for like six sessions. And he was like, why don't you do this as a job? And I was like, what, really? And he was, I was like, I don't have a high school diploma because the other thing is my parents allowed me to be pulled out of school. So I only have a grade eight equivalent. And I was really only taught math, English, uh, and science homeschooling. So I was done like a massive disservice there in my education level. So <clears throat> thank God for that personal trainer. So I, I, I went and I, I studied for it and I, I met some, met the, the fitness manager and she hired me and that actually changed everything. Uh, it created this sense of worth that I had been lacking for my entire life, right? Like I had masochistic tendencies, I, you know, like suffered with an eating disorder and my value was just like, I was a shell of a human being. Um, so during that period of time, while I was trying to build my clientele, it's, it's hard to do and you have to devote so much time. So I was missing meetings and missing field service and spending more time doing that. And so that created an issue with my family. So I moved out for a short period of time, uh, kicked out, moved out, same thing. <laughs> <clears throat> so as I was doing that, um, some other things transpired uh, like stress, I had to go on stress leave because it was just too much. I don't working, you know, 60, 70 hour weeks with someone who suffers from complex PTSD, which I didn't know at the time. It, it was just draining me so severely that I just wasn't able to function and I wasn't able to hold my, my temper. And I just like emotional regulation was just so not there. So I ended up um, moving back in with my parents and I like dove headfirst back into the organization. And I was like, you know what? Like, I'm going to try really, really hard. Obviously, maybe I just wasn't trying hard enough. Um, so I dove back in <clears throat> and then I started noticing that I couldn't even be at the church and around people like what would happen is as soon as the meeting would start I'd come in and I'd sit in the back it was called the second school away from everybody I would attend it and then I would leave not associating with anybody and now as I think about it my energy and my nervous system 
my body was trying to protect me. My body was like, you don't need to be there. Like, this isn't helping you. Um, and they have these things uh, throughout the year called uh, conventions. They, ho they host them in Cornwall normally, and they're like three-day conventions. And I was getting to a point where I couldn't even attend those three days. Like I'd have to attend one day and then sleep the entire next day to recover. And that was just, it was just taking so much out of me as a person. Um, I got back into uh, training and like personal training after stress leave. And I went from a, went to a smaller smaller, more like mom and pop gym style. And that was super great uh, until I had like an emotional relapse and I took a lot of pills and I tried to kill myself. And that was in the tail end of 2013. And from then I finally actually got some help that I greatly needed from outpatient therapy for six months. And there's this narrative in the in the the uh, the cult that they don't want you to seek help, mental help, mm. and only maybe in the past like five to ten years have they been okay if somebody attends therapy, because they they know that the therapists are going to be like, this is what's creating all of this worthlessness in you. Um, so when I when I was hospitalized, they finally diagnosed me with PTSD and borderline personality disorder and adjustment disorder. Um, and that's it. You made it through. Thank you so much for listening to the top 10 episodes of the Life in Red podcast from the year 2021. Working on uh, putting together a schedule for you for 2022 so we can continue these open, honest, vulnerable, in-depth conversations with people who are a lot smarter than me. and passionate about what they do and so we continue our evolution and growth and learning together so thank you so much for listening thank you so much for sticking with me for another year of the life from red podcast um we hit our 100th episode this year right episode 131 um absolutely incredible and i appreciate you joining me on this journey i know 2021 again as we said off the top a year of ups and downs I don't know what the year 2022 is going to bring yet. God hope we're out of COVID, um, at least the pandemic phase and it goes endemic. Um, but I mean, who knows? I'm, who knows what other tragedies and world events are going to happen. But, you know, all we can do is move forward with what we control. Um, and I wish you a very happy and successful new year. I hope everything that you deserve to happen happens to you and that you are healthy, your family and friends continue to be healthy and safe. And um, I look forward to uh, another great year with you. So thank you for listening and all the best. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit